the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, October 5th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be looking at the latest controversy surrounding the closure of Dublin department store Cleary's. Mark Paul will tell us later how the store's former American private equity owners received 3.6 million euros before Cleary's was sold on and then closed in dramatic fashion in the middle of last year. Later, we'll also have the latest of our profiles of nominees for the EY Entrepreneur of the Awards. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. But we'll start with Brexit. And this week, British Prime Minister Theresa May has told the Tory party conference that Article 50 will be triggered by the end of next March, beginning a two-year period of negotiating of negotiation on exiting the EU. Uh, talk of a hard Brexit has had contrasting effects on sterling and the stock markets. And here to discuss this with me are in studio Joe Brennan, markets correspondent with the Irish Times, and by phone from the UK by Joe Lynham of the BBC. Joe Lynham, uh, we might just start with you. Perhaps you could just sort of sum up for us, if you like, um, what we've heard this week from Th- Theresa May and indeed other senior elders of the Tory party as to how Britain is going to approach uh, this Brexit negotiation with the European Commission. I tell you, I would split it into uh, two. Uh, basically, it is the Conservative Party, which is almost without opposition now because of the demise of a proper uh, Labour opposition and the demise of the Lib Dems, etc., um, has moved to the right, to the hard right. Uh, it is talking about immigrants uh, in a way that uh, David Cameron or George Osborne never would have six months ago, i.e., Uh, The new um, Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, is talking about flushing out employers who employ non-British workers in future. Now, this is the kind of language that never would have been spoken about uh, up to very, very recently. And it is uh, a spin-off from the Brexit vote, which very much was uh, an anti-immigrant and anti-immigration vote. And at the same time, the government here is now talking about tacking very much towards the centre and, dare I say, to the left, using the kind of language that Ed Miliband, the former Labour Party leader, would have been using right up to the general election May last year, which he lost badly. They're talking about benefiting the many rather than the few that the elites in the UK have seen their day and now the many will benefit, that those who are just getting by will more than just get the attention of this government and that Theresa May will make it basically the lifeblood of her government right up to the next general election in 2020 to focus on those people who have felt left out those people who have almost certainly voted to leave the European Union that felt that the elites were getting all the jobs and the money and that they had been left out. So it's tacking to the hard right and at the centre tacking as well to the left. Yeah. And is there a sense among the British public, um, Joe, that, you know, Brexit mightn't be such a bad thing after all? Because I think there was quite a reaction initially after the vote. There was a big intake of breath um, and great fears, obviously, about the impact it might have on the economy. But Things actually, I mean, if you if you take away the currency effect, things probably haven't worked out as badly in the short term, at least, uh, than people would have thought. There's no doubt that the economy has not wobbled since the Brexit vote. 
Quite a few people expected Britain to be plunged into an instant recession. Some of the brightest minds in economics, including the IMF, including the Bank of England and the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the World Bank, etc., etc., said that there would be a short, sharp shock and potentially a long, sharp shock. That has not materialized. Now, since we now know that Article 50 will be triggered and in the next six months, um, I suspect the, the, real, uh, the real decision-making will go on amongst employers in this country. And then we will see whether there will be a downside to uh, this Brexit decision. So if, for example, it looks as if Britain is going to have what's called a hard Brexit, i.e. not even remaining within the European economic area, leaving the single market, etc., then it will be up to a lot of big employers to make some very hard decisions about whether they stay in Britain. And I'm thinking especially of the banking sector, the insurance sector, financial services sector, who need passporting rights to be able to sell their goods all over the European Union. If you are a Swiss bank and an American bank, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Gorman, Goldman Sachs, etc., etc., you are going to think long and hard about whether you have to be within the single market. And that basically cannot include England uh, the United Kingdom from um, mid-2019. So you will start having a look at where you're going to base some, not all, of your people who are currently in London. The real interesting one as to whether Brexit is going to be very, very noticeable will be the car makers. So we saw some very strong comments last week from Jaguar Land Rover. We saw some comments from the boss of Nissan. They employ a lot of people in the UK and in very efficient car making factories, especially in Sunderland in the northeast of England, which is a not a very wealthy part of the country. If they decide not to build the next generation of Qashqai cars in Sunderland, that will put a serious question mark over the Sunderland plant belonging to Nissan. And they will find it very tough to find 7,000 directly employed, well-paid jobs in the northeast of England, plus 20 to 30,000 ancillary or related jobs in that part of the country. That, for me, will be a key, key decision as to whether Brexit will be genuinely felt. Whereas if individual bankers move from London, that may be less keenly felt than those very well-paid jobs in poorer parts of the country. Yeah, Joe Brennan, uh, bring him in at this point because we've seen sterling fall to a 30-year low or thereabouts uh, against the dollar and three-year low, I think, against the euro. But actually, it's been a different experience for the FTSE, hasn't it? Uh, it's actually doing fine. Yeah, I suppose if you look at the, the FTSE, if you look at it, it's, it's very heavily weighted in big exporting uh companies that wouldn't be as reliant on, on the UK as, say, the FTSE 250. I mean, you think of like the likes of AstraZeneca and GlaxoSmithKline, both big drug makers, Unilever, um, British American Tobacco, and even the oil companies, because of the way the sterling has gone against the, the dollar, even though, they, even though they, the, the price of oil has gone down, the, the, the conversion rate into, uh, sort of the, the translation in, into, into sterling has, has benefited the, the, the oil companies as well. So it's the, it's the high weighting of those big exporters, and obviously with the, the lower uh, sterling versus the yeah. euro and the and the dollar that's really helped them and will help them going forward. And the oil companies probably benefiting from the fact that it looks as if there's going to be a reduction in the output uh, going forward, which we haven't seen for a number of years. Yeah, I mean, that's been a long, ongoing kind of issue, a long debate between the uh, the, the OPEC and the non-OPEC members. But it seems they're getting to a, a stage now where they will actually uh, rein in um, output, which will be a support to uh, mm -hmm. certainly a, 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 yeah, underpin um, oil prices. 
So does the performance of the FTSE Joe make a mockery of uh, Christine Lagarde's uh, warnings pre-referendum when she uh, she was very alarmist in what she said? She said there was going to be a stock market crash effectively in Britain uh, and that hasn't turned out to be the case? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, the FTSE is very much an international, uh, even though it is that the, the London benchmark, it is an internationally focused uh, benchmark when it comes to the, 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 the companies that are listed on it. Um, I think it, it remains to be seen how the, the, the FTSE uh, 250 kind of stands up. Um, it is underperforming um, quite dramatically, even though it's up um, up on the year so far. It's up about 4.5% versus the, the, the FTSE, which is up about 13%. Again, it depends how uh, Brexit fares over the next two years and what the ultimate outcome of it will be and whether there will be a, a knock-on effect to the underlying economy. And that will only be seen in the next 18 months, two years. Uh, Joe Lynham, there has been uh, talk of some legal challenges taking place. I know one began in Northern Ireland today. They began hearing some arguments uh, in relation to that. This is effectively people trying to stop uh, the, the Brexit vote or, or overturn it. Um, do you think they'll have uh, any success with that? And, and do you think, I mean, there's been a lot of talk that really this should have gone to Parliament, um, that the referendum vote should have gone to Parliament to, to be passed and that if it had, you know, the parliamentarians, Westminster might have actually uh, given a different uh, vote. Do you think that actually would have been the case? I mean, do you think that parliamentarians uh, wouldn't listen to the will of the people? Um, uh, first of all, I don't think anything is going to stop Brexit happening. Um, uh, first of all, I don't think anything, any legal challenges will stop Brexit from happening. But let's imagine for a moment that the Supreme Court in London does decide that each of the devolved assemblies, Northern Ireland, Cardiff, uh, Edinburgh, uh, have to have a say and a vote on this. That would create a massive constitutional crisis because it is hard to see Edinburgh voting for Brexit. Uh, Northern Ireland might be a little bit more split and I haven't a notion how Cardiff will vote simply because the vast majority of the parliamentarians in Cardiff are uh, either Plaid Cymru or Labour and one or two UKIPers, but mostly people who would have advocated remain. So if, the, if, if that constitutional crisis were to come, the only way to alleviate that would be to hold those votes or to redo uh, a, a referendum or to force the Houses of Parliament in Westminster to vote on these things. And even that is very interesting because there's no doubt that the House of Lords, an unelected body, completely unelected, could stifle any attempts by the House of Commons to push through Brexit. The majority of peers, they don't owe anyone any favours because they're there in that job for life. And they were given it and they are supposedly supposed to toe the line, but they often ignore the party line. And they are mostly Romanians and they are probably if they were given a chance, would prefer Britain to stay in the European Union. So you could have the situation whereby a totally unelected chamber could contravene the will of 17 million UK voters. And you can imagine what sort of problems that that would cause. Add in the fact that there is a 50-50 chance that Scotland will have left the United Kingdom before the United Kingdom leaves the European Union. That's not my words, but the words of John Curtis, Professor John Curtis from Strathclyde University, who is the most respected sophologist or pollster in the land. Really, that's quite a stark, uh, th that's quite a stark prediction because... Well, I mean, the Scots haven't pressed the button on another referendum. I'm not sure. Uh, I very much doubt that Theresa May would want one. Um, so he's predicting that within the next couple of years, Scotland are going to leave the UK. 
No, he's predicting there's a 50-50 chance of Scotland leaving the UK before the UK leaves the EU. That basically means there's a 50-50 chance that there will be a referendum and that it will be carried this time in Scotland. Um, there are so many constitutional issues up in the air. And of course, you guys know more than I do about the constitutional issues in the north of Ireland. And a lot of the discussion is going to go on in the island of Ireland is how do you keep the northern part of the island in the European Union and get all the benefits of EU membership whilst not having a hard border between the European Union, i.e. Ireland, and uh, the UK, Northern Ireland. And finally, Joe Lennon, do you see any prospect of an early general election in the UK? Gosh, ordinarily I'd say yes, there should be. She has no mandate. She hasn't been voted for by her own party members, let alone by the wider public. And remember, Gordon Brown didn't go to the people and the first opportunity that he got to face the people, he was unceremoniously turfed out. At the moment, Theresa May is very much in a honeymoon period. Who knows? Remember, her party is split down the middle. Who knows the agitation that will go on behind the scenes? And if, for example, the economy starts to turn and turn dramatically into such an extent that there'd have to be cutbacks, major cutbacks, and it has a real effect on people's lives, who knows what will happen then? OK, Joe Lynham, thank you for joining us. Now, sorry, yeah, we had a few technical issues there with uh, Joe Lynham's line from London, so apologies uh, if uh, there are any issues there in listening to that. Uh, just before I let you go, Joe Brennan, just one final question I want to ask you in relation to the markets. Uh, Deutsche Bank has had a pretty uh, horrible few weeks. Um, talk of a, a bailout possibly from the German state uh, and, and so forth. Uh, where is it at at the moment? What kind of week has it had to date? And, and how is that playing out for the banking sector as a whole? Yeah, um, Deutsche Bank, its its problems have gone back way longer than what's happened in the last few weeks. Um, the, the latest kind of crisis point has been uh, the Department of Justice uh, looking for a... This is in the United States. In the States, looking for uh, $14 billion um, from, uh, from Deutsche Bank to settle uh, an investigation in relation to its sale of um, asset-backed securities before the crisis. Um, the Deutsche Bank itself, I think, would like to get this resolved before the next administration comes in because that would lead to further delays and we don't know how, or they wouldn't know how the, the next administration would deal with the issue. There was speculation there last week that um, that the, 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 the ultimate fine or settlement would be much lower than the $14 billion that was demanded originally, uh, somewhere in the region of $5.4 billion, but it's, it's, it's not known if that, you know, where it'll land. And I suppose there'll be a lot of uh, back and forth over the next few weeks to try and get something done before the, before the election. Uh, Deutsche Bank's problems go back a good bit. I mean, if you look back at early part of this year, uh, Deutsche Bank was heavily sold off um, when you saw that uh, trading conditions globally w- was hit um, and you saw that they had a, a massive problem with um, uh, trying to deal with uh, bonds, junior bonds that they, they held. There was a fear in the market that they wouldn't be able to, to meet uh, coupon payments on that. Now, they, they managed to get over that line but still, even after that, in May, you had the likes of Berenberg Bank saying that uh, Deutsche Bank um, may need to raise capital. This time round, uh, the, the view is, it depends from one analyst to the next, but uh, the, I suppose the most bearish view that's out there is this group called Autonomous. They're a research company. They reckon that they may need to raise uh, $9.5 billion. And given that the market cap of Deutsche Bank is somewhere around $16 billion, Max would be able to raise themselves somewhere around uh, less than $6 billion, uh, if they were to do a rights issue. 
which would kind of put them into into the league of actually having to go to the German government. Now, the problem with the German government is that they have been in the forefront of new regulations, new European rules, which would pass on the cost of bailing out banks to bond holders. Exactly. And Germany has been been one of the the, the most entrenched kind of uh, believers behind that and enforcing that that, uh, legislation through. And you see when they were when the Italians were looking to uh, to potentially um, bail out their own banks, uh, Chancellor Merkel was mm. one of the most was one of the more foremost foremost uh, uh, leaders in saying that no, yeah. you have to be able to you have to share this with with uh, bondholders and other types of investors. Yeah. Whatever way it shakes out, it's it's a bad. It's not a good backdrop for a potential IPO of AIB in the new year, is it? No. Um, yeah. I mean, if you look at banks, uh, Deutsche Bank is off about fifty percent so far this year. If you look at the overall European banking index, is off probably about half of that. But uh, no, it's not. It's not a good uh, time to be uh, for for the likes of AIB to try an IPO. Definitely not. Right, Joe Brennan. Thank you for that. Okay, we'll take a short break now and return with the latest in our series of profiles of nominees for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year awards. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that forty nine percent of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life September 2014. Now, for the second part of the show, I'm joined in studio by Mark Paul, the business affairs correspondent of the Irish Times, who's been writing uh, in the newspaper today with updates on the Cleary's saga, uh, telling us that, among other things, uh, the former owners of Cleary's, Gordon Burns, a Boston-based private equity firm, um, paid themselves 3.6 million euros in the run-up to the sale of the famous department store uh, before it was uh, sold on and then subsequently closed in dramatic fashion in the middle of last year. Mark, uh, tell us all about this. Um, well, uh, Gordon Brothers had had bought Cleary's about two years beforehand, but um, and, and as part of that deal, they had lent Cleary's uh, six million euros, um, and that money was repaid to Gordon Brothers out of the proceeds of the sale when 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 the business was sold. But it emerged this week in, in accounts that were filed covering that period um, that they received a payment right before um, um, the business was closed, effectively, and sold uh, of 3.65 million euros. Now, it's characterised in the accounts as interest and fees, but it's not explained any further. Um, now, this money was uh, was paid to Gordon Brothers from the holding company, the company that was effectively sold to Natrium, giving them uh, control of, of, of the whole thing. Um, now, if it's interest um, um, on a six Point five million euro loan. I mean, it's it's you know it's well over fifty percent interest. Um, uh, it's six times higher than the corresponding figure for the previous year when interest and fees was six hundred thousand euros. So I suppose it begs the question that um, you know what did Gordon Brothers do to take a three point hmm. and almost a three point seven million euro payment? What did they have to say for themselves? Uh, they've had absolutely nothing to say for themselves because as 
you know, as 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 is the norm, I think uh, in my interactions with Gordon Brothers these days, they don't respond to queries. I sent them detailed queries. I asked them, "What did you do for this money? Um, should this money not have been less in the balance sheet to cover any any losses by workers or or or, or by concession concession holders? And um, why was it six times larger than the payment the year before? Um, and and uh, is there any other explanation for the money? And you know, we heard nothing back um, um, to, to to phone calls and emails. Um, and phone calls to mobile phones of, of, of the former directors of Cleary's. Uh, we've heard nothing back from Gordon Brothers, so there was no explanation for this money. Okay. Now, what about Natrium? What have they had to say? I mean, perhaps we should just recap, just remind people exactly what happened last year uh, when Gordon Brothers uh, sold this business. So Gordon Brothers sold the holding company that owned the Cleary's operating business and the Cleary's property. They, uh, they sold that to and Natrium. They were separate entities. They, they were separate entities with, with, with a common owner, um, and 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 they sold the common owner to a company called Natrium, which is a joint venture between uh, Dublin property developer Deirdre Foley and Cheney Capital, which is a London hedge fund. Um, and and they um, uh, hours later, or if you look at the documents in the court, minutes later, and this this all happened in the middle of the night, by the way. Um, and and uh, minutes later, then they they flipped the operating business, which was insolvent, um, onto two oper- two insolvency practitioners for a euro in Northern uh, Ireland. Wasn't um, um, uh, no, they, they were they, they were UK-based insolvency practitioners, but Irish as well. There was an Irish and UK uh, connection uh, there, and uh, and later on that day, then the insolvency, the operating business was insolvent, was put into liquidation. Everybody lost their jobs. The concessionaires didn't get paid. Um, it was a Friday evening around five or six o'clock, wasn't it? Uh, the staff were just gathered at the bottom of the stairs, and they were told essentially that st- business was gone. Staff staff were told, yeah, and gather at the bottom of the stairs uh, when your shift is finished, or gather at the bottom of the stairs at half past five. I think it was when they arrived. Arrived at half past five. Um, um, there was a, a gentleman from KPMG standing there with the manager of the store, and there was also guys in black jackets and black trousers changing all the locks, changing all the locks on the staff um, uh, lockers, and 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 then you know uh, within uh, within twenty five or thirty minutes they were all standing outside in O'Connell Street uh, while the locks were changing the front doors, and they never got back inside the building ever again. Mm-hmm. Was was there not a lock in? Um, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think there were. There was a. There, certainly, there were some of them. They were escorted off the premises. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Um, and subsequently, uh, a planning application has been lodged with Dublin City Council. Uh, essentially for the building. Yes, a planning application has been lodged by Natrium, which now is in possession and ownership of the property um, to redevelop it. Uh, and they're going to sort of break through the back of the building and try and open up a plaza to uh, uh, to the street behind. They've acquired other buildings uh, uh, in the vicinity around. Uh, and so basically they're trying to do a big regeneration uh, style uh, redevelopment of the area and um, they've been trying to tempt um, a sort of a big an- anchor tenant to come in we know that they've had conversations with Apple um, um, but there has been no deal uh, as of yet um, um, and they'll also you know there was talk about maybe putting a hotel upstairs but it'll be a, I suppose a classic mixed use development but anchored at the bottom by a big retail tenant yeah. Let's go back to this uh, payment to Gordon Brothers because 3.6 million just before the sale I mean effectively there was no money in the pot mm-hmm. to pay the workers was there uh, what they were owed I mean some of them had been there 40, over 40 Years. Some of them have been there over 40 years. The state was eventually landed with a tab for about 2.5 million to pay the statutory redundancy of these workers. Now, it should be uh, we should point out that this 3.6 million euro payment was made by the holding company um, to Gordon Brothers, and the company that was placed into liquidation was the operating company. The holding company owned the operating company, but in in, in essence, it was a triangular structure. You had a, an operating company and a property company at the bottom, and a holding company at the top. They operated as a group, and um, so if that money hadn't been paid out to Gordon Brothers, might it have been available in some 
some way, shape or form to pay the workers who lost out, to pay the concessionaires who lost out, to, uh, to, 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 to sort of pay the bill that the state ended up taking. There are other instances as well of, of, of money that are still unexplained and that were, that were removed from the group in the run-up to the sale and, and that we've written about before. I mean, for example, on the night before Cleary's was sold, one million euros from the insurance proceeds, you remember the roof caved in uh, because of the rain a year or 18 months beforehand, one million of those proceeds was reallocated from the operating company, the one that went bust uh, the following day, to the property company. Um, and and, and there, was, th- there was never a proper explanation given mm-hmm. for that. All they said was that there was a mistake in the first place. There, um, there, there were other instances where, um, you know, you kind of look at the operating company and think, gosh, you know, it, it, it did really get sort of hollowed out to a certain degree. All the trading names, the Cleary's trading name, um, they were all owned by the operating company at one stage and suddenly they all ended up in the ownership of the of the property business and, and of the holding company, which meant that whoever bought Cleary's let the property company uh, uh, slide into insolvency and then they would have all the Cleary's trading names. Surely those are something yeah. that should have been available. So there is a bit an investigation into all this, isn't there? There's, the liquidators, uh, liquidators uh, to the operating company are uh, obliged to look into the circumstances around a lot of these things uh, and to report back to the High Court. But the likes of the 3.65 million euro payment, they're not going to look into, I'm told, um, because it's outside of their remit, because it was a payment made by the holding company and not by the operating company that they're a liquidator to. Okay. Now, uh, any reaction from the unions today to all of this? There was reaction from the unions. The unions want to know why um, and they, you know, the unions made the a, a very fair point. I think that you know, perhaps there is a, a very easy explanation as to why 3.6 million euros was removed from Cleary's um, right before it was sold. Um, but they want to know what it is and, and, and they haven't gotten an explanation yet. Uh, something else that emerged yesterday, by the way, was that um, the new owners of, of Cleary's uh, um, um, uh, Natrium utilised a, a, a tax avoidance vehicle to hold 80% into the business. It's called an ICAV. ICAVs were set up um, to sort of tempt foreign funds business to Ireland that were never intended for uh, for use in Irish property deals to avoid tax. Um, and and 80% of the Cleary's business is now held in an ICAV, um, um, meaning that uh, the dividends and the payments from that ICAV um, 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 certainly are, are, are highly tax efficient. Um, so that's another that's another aspect. It just seems that everybody um, sort of uh, made out well in this deal apart from uh, the workers and the concessionaires. Okay, Mark Paul, thank you for joining us. Now, welcome back. I'm joined in studio by uh, two more nominees for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. I'm joined by Stephen Vernon of Green Property Group and Colin Cullerton of TPI Group. And as usual, I've asked the two guys to give us a a one-minute elevator speech just to tell us a little bit about themselves and the businesses. Hi, I'm Colin Cullerton. I'm the CEO of the TPI Group. Um, We were a printing company and we were blissfully happy to be until the recession hit and things became very, very hairy and scary in our area. Um, We steadied the ship. We dropped sales by about 30% and we dropped our costs by more. So we managed to stay profitable even in the bad years. But we did realise that when coming out of the recession, things had changed. Demand was different and we couldn't see a hugely profitable and, and prosperous future for us just by offering um, uh, print and design solutions. So we decided to make a marketing communications group focusing on two things, a really good team that I had together through the recession and also a great group of customers. So from that small uh, uh, strategy change, we've grown into a group of six companies now who offer a very wide range of uh, marketing communications, which we call clever customer communications. And so far, so good. Um, Next year looks very bright. We're trading very, very profitably at the moment. And fingers crossed, we will continue to grow by offering more to the same group of customers we had before. Hi, I'm Stephen Vernon. I'm chairman of the um, various companies that trade as green, green property. 
I came to Ireland in 1993, um, ha- having worked in the city in London, and took over Green Den, which was a relatively small company, um, and I grew it for the next nine years. And it was it was a successful company in, in every way, except that the stock market didn't quite get it because we had a diverse business plan in the UK, here, secondary industrial, prime offices, different things like that. So I took it private in 2002, backed by a couple of banks. We then sold a lot of assets into the boom here, and it was a very successful um, workout of the take private of the company, so that eventually we were able to buy out the banks, leaving myself and the other directors as the shareholders of the entity. Then um, Pat Gunn joined in 2008, and we started effectively a new business altogether as partners um, and started working with the banks and helping them work out their troubled loan portfolios and so forth. We did that for five years. That came to an end in 2013, and we started up Green Reap because we wanted to get back into the market, get capital, and start putting it to work in the Irish market and benefit from the, um, the recovery that we saw. And we now have Green Reap, which is a very successful Ireland's first REIT. Okay, gents, uh, thanks for those elevator uh, pitches, uh, as it were. Stephen, I might just start with you because people probably know you best uh, for your involvement with the Blanchetown Shopping Centre, which is now probably the biggest retail complex in Ireland, I guess. And you just sold it recently. Congratulations on that for a very good price. Uh, I think it's it's billed as being the, the biggest commercial real estate deal in the history of the state. Yes. And I think you timed it just perfectly, just before the Brexit vote uh, emerged. <laughs> well, we don't know what the impact of Brexit will be on retailing in Ireland. Um, I mean, obviously, currency is a serious issue now because mm-hmm. of the decline in the pound and the availability of internet purchasing uh, or, or going to the north. On the other hand, you have greater consumer confidence now than we've had for the last seven or eight years. Um, and those two things will push and pull in different ways. And I think it'll be another six months or so before we know how Ireland's retailing is going to play out in this recovering scenario. Colin, uh, very interesting to hear your sort of uh, pitch about the business. I mean, uh, sales down 30%. You actually managed to cut your costs uh, by more than that. And you completely re-engineered the business uh, in the recession and you've managed to come out the other side with a profitable trading, more diverse entity. Yeah, well, we had to change. And I actually, if, if I if I learned anything from the last few years, it's that if you want to change, you start with yourself and then you move on to others. So I had to re-educate myself significantly to realise that, like, the kind of, the one offering sometimes isn't enough and really you need to re-upskill yourself and, and re-engineer your business. I was lucky I was working with a young team and they were very flexible. So we were able to change the same people into completely different um, experts in a completely different area. So marketing communications wasn't as difficult as it might sound. And the, the big thing was that we kept our customers. So we were working with a level of trust that other people maybe didn't have. Um, we're not perfect and we're always constantly trying to improve. But one thing I've really got dr- drilled home into the team is the one thing they can be certain of is next year will not look like last year. And every year I talk to them, I talk to them three or four times a year and I tell them the same thing. We're going to change because we have to change because the customer is changing. And otherwise, we're going to end up in a situation that we're going to be obsolete. And certainly the, the history of businesses is scattered with very, very good companies that just refuse to embrace change in the way that we have. And we're very hopeful we'd be fleet of foot and keep moving ahead of the market. All right. Just just sort of outline the size and scale of the business for me in terms of staff numbers, turnover, profits, that type of thing. Um, well, I... 
as of now, we have 135 full-time and, and quite a number of uh, part-time working for us. The business should turn over 20 million euros next year. So I suppose it's a little enlarged here with Stephen. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intimidated by his size, and that sounds very weird thing to say. But what I would say is we're growing, and we, we're growing quickly, and I'm very comfortable that we could double the size of that business, our, our business, over five years if we... Um, do the things correctly. Stephen mentioned that there's an awful lot more confidence around the retail business is getting better and better and one of our businesses, TAP, is is very much in the retail space. It does retail design and, and, and doing up the shop is certainly something that we see happening all around us. And the great thing about that, it's like painting a bridge. Everyone basically does up the shop, then then they have to come back and then do it again because their competitors have moved their game. So for, from our point of view, we're very comfortable. We're in a buoyant market. But, but I've learned something from the recession and it's that you absolutely can't be certain what's coming down the line and it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's blips like Brexit um, and other things like that that could really change the marketplace. The key for us is that we're fleet of foot and that we're able to compete okay. with anyone. So you're talking about 100 million turnover business within five years. That's no, no, 40 million. Uh, Sorry, 40 million. Yeah, 40 yeah, million, yeah. right, okay. Uh, um, and again, that would be mainly by organic growth we would see that happening. We've opened in the UK about a year ago and that's going very very well for us and we intend to use all of the different companies um, and try and, and sell into the UK market better than we did pro, uh, pre-budget. Right, okay. Uh, Stephen, your uh, main focus now, I guess, is with uh, Green Reit. Um, it's a property investment fund. It's listed. And we have Brexit now. There's a lot of talk of, you know, maybe financial services companies and other entities from Britain moving to Ireland uh, because they need to passport into other European markets, uh, etc. Now that, you know, they're, they're leaving the European Union. What's the opportunity there? And are you actually having discussions right now uh, with interested parties? No, I mean, I, I would endorse what Colin just said, that the, the one constant here is change. And, you know, we, we've morphed through different phases from being old green, then the workout business, now the REIT. Um, Ireland is an extremely volatile market in real estate. It's such a small country and there's such a focus on real estate that we tend to have highs and lows that beat everybody else's highs and lows. And we're always either going up faster than everybody or going down faster than everybody. And just when it looked like we were in a relative phase of normality, which is very unusual for Ireland, (laughs) along comes Brexit. So there's a lot of debate at the moment. I've been on the road for the last three weeks in the States, in London, in Europe, uh, announcing the results for the third year end of the REIT and picking up vibes from the financial institutions that we've been talking to who are our shareholders. And what seems to be the case is that they aren't going to wait. They take the view that, you know, the negotiations are going to get pushed back by the elections next year in Germany and so forth. And that um, it's, it's going to be a long time before there's real clarity on how this is going to play out. And the financial institutions, uh, by and large, I think are going to have to act So we could see activity here as early as next year. What's going on at the moment, as I understand it, and this is hearsay, is that um, there are HR teams and admin people preparing reports for the boards of the financial institutions on how Dublin would compare with Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Paris, in terms of housing, education, everything else. Um, But as far as I'm aware, no estate agents have got a a mandate to go and acquire office space. So, I mean... The story we're telling our shareholders is that we think that Brexit is basically bad for Ireland, but that we can't see how it's bad for the Dublin office market. And I have a view which I haven't heard anyone support yet, but it seems to me it's a possibility is that there'll be a bonus for logistics, which could, you see, if there's any issues about the free movement of goods, distribution of of goods, which at the moment is largely done through the UK, uh, where the only barrier is the sea. 
But there could be a, a different kind of barrier if you don't have absolute free movement of goods. Now, this is purely speculation on my part, but it seems to me that's something that might... So, I'm, I mean, we're looking for positives here. Overall, I think it's a negative. And I mean, how is this going to affect the housing market? Uh, and what are your views on the housing market? Because obviously, if, if a lot of office workers or a lot of jobs come to Ireland from the financial services sector in the UK, let's say, uh, we're going to have to house these people. And at the moment, we're having, struggling to house our own people. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm known no more about housing than anybody else. I'm not an expert on housing. We don't invest in housing. I've never built houses, whatever. But obviously, we're watching it as part of the broader picture. Um, it does seem to me that, that people have copped on here government, everybody else, NAMA, everybody realises there is, there is huge pressure to, to build the houses. I think from what I hear from the builders, it's not as profitable as people think it ought to be. Because even though house prices are high, the taxation system here is ripping the guts out of the economics of the whole thing. So the government, I think, is largely to blame for whatever problems exist. Um, <laughs> but it is getting sorted out and houses are going to get built. The other side of the coin is that I suspect that the people that come in here to work for the foreign direct investment companies coming in or the people moving from London, they're not the ones that won't be able to afford the, the rents. The problem, I think, is more a social one in that they'll be pushing out existing tenants, you know, down in Ring's End or whatever. And it'll cause all sorts of trouble because people who are only able to earn to a certain level want to live within an, within an hour's commute of their job. Yes. And we're going to have huge problems in terms of actually employing people because they're in a situation where they're going to go, look, I need more money for, to, to earn just to live yeah. in Dublin. Yeah. And I mean, I remember having people from Cavan commuting from Cavan to work in Font Hill where we're based. Which sounds insane. Yeah, I know. And, and to be honest with you, it'll happen again because what's ended up happening now is people are finding it even hard at any level to rent a property. I was talking to a girl today, actually, who works for me, and she was telling me that she was looking in Kilkenny and there was 12 houses available for rent in Kilkenny. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what she said and she had no reason to say otherwise. Yeah. But the point is, it'll be Irish people, I think, that will end up taking the hit here because um, if you're 100,000 or 150,000 yeah. a year banker, you're going to be given an apartment to come to Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really where the problem will, 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 will happen. And I know from, from previous experience in industry, we have a level to which we can pay our wages. We can't just continually up it. Um, our customers aren't paying a whole lot more for the product that they get. So we can't just uh, uh, move our wages up. So yeah. it's going to be a very, very tricky one. And I think you're dead right. I think it'll be a double-edged sword. There'll be parts mm. of it, including the par a property market that might see upside. But I, I could see industry having a tough time mm. with Brexit. And, and Stephen, when we spoke in May, um, you, you talked about uh, the future of the REIT uh, being in Ireland, obviously, but also in the UK. Have you changed your view because of Brexit and... And what's no, followed? Well, no, I mean, ironically, and not to mirror a comment that Donald Trump made the other day about wanting houses to go down in value so he could get him on board the deal. I, I Basically, we are more or less out of the UK. We have one substantial property left to sell. We just shut our office in Berkeley Square. The REIT is a purely Republic of Ireland vehicle. It will never invest even in the north. There's no currency exposures. It is just Republic of Ireland. It's designed that way to give clear focus to investors not to repeat the issues we had in Old Green yeah. when, however successful it was, the complex business plan mm -hmm. made it difficult for institutions to be attracted to it. So, um, in the case of the UK, we are going to wait until we see an opportunity to go back in. It won't be Green Reap, but it will be... Some other... It'll people. be myself and Pat and, and, and others. Um, and the fact that property values in London seem to be tanking at the moment is obviously likely to create that opportunity. But I don't think we'll be making any moves for a year or so. We'd want right. to see, you know, it's too early, I right. think, to be making bets yeah. of any sort based on how Brexit will play out because no one knows.
Sure, yeah. And listen, you're British, so uh, you, you have, uh, I suppose, an extra um, view on this maybe. But has there been a lot of scaremongering about the, the impact that Brexit's going to have on the British economy? You know, I mean, the world didn't stop revolving, uh, no. night still follows day and all of that uh, kind of no, stuff. No, I mean, the, 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 the mood in London, I think, is that if you re-ran the vote today, you would have a bigger majority for leave. And as far as Ireland's concerned, I think what surprised us on our road trip in the last fortnight particularly in the UK and the States, is that there's a stronger feeling there on the positives for Ireland. But then we're talking about the office market in Dublin. And we haven't really discussed the more sort of macroeconomic situation. I mean, it must be difficult, obviously, for exporters into the UK right now. Colin, uh, there's this uh, sort of conversation as to whether entrepreneurs are made or born. Uh, which category do you uh, feed into? And when you were a young fella uh, growing up, did you, did you always kind of aspire to being an entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, I was a little bit sad when I was growing up. I used to c- carry a briefcase into into school and and wear a, a Mac, so I always wanted to be a businessman. And actually, I remember people thinking that was a weird thing to want uh, at that time because nobody really aspired to be a businessman. It wasn't something. I mean, lots of people wanted to be millionaires, but not anybody not not by working through business. Um, I, I'm in a situation where I used to be in the camp that said that they were born. But I've seen too much real evidence that the, it can be taught. And, and I think it, the fact of the matter is an awful lot of people who don't start and run businesses could start and run businesses. And I think our job as entrepreneurs is to remind people that you dance into work in the morning when you're an entrepreneur. You maybe drag yourself into work on a bad day when you're an employee. And I think more people should be doing it. I don't think it suits everyone, Kieran. I think it's it's one of those um, jobs that you, you can do if you're, if you're driven and if you're organised. But if you're somebody that really likes to leave the job at work and go home and forget about it, it's not for you. So not everyone, not everyone can do it. But I certainly think an awful lot more people that, that, that don't do it could learn it. And I think our job, maybe myself and, and everyone else on the Entrepreneur of the Year programme should be saying, listen, give it a go. Even if it doesn't work out, you still have your skill set. You can still go and find a job. You can still do what you're doing now. But, but it is a hugely beneficial thing if you can take the chance and go out there and try. Stephen, were you born or made as an entrepreneur? Do you know, I never even thought of myself as an entrepreneur until I got nominated for this Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year thing. I think I'm uh, someone who's just sort of dragged into it, really. I don't think I'm either born... I'm not even sure I am an entrepreneur, really. You don't mind me saying, so you're kind of old school as well, because you're bricks and mortar, where a lot of the uh, EY nominees are in tech or they're in disruptive industries. Yeah, I mean, I've got great... I, I get it entrepreneurs and I have got great respect for a lot of the people I've met on this trip who who have an approach to life that I think is incredibly admirable but in my case it's more that I've taken risks to achieve what I've wanted to achieve but often out of you know fear of the alternative I mean I didn't even want to take green private in 02 I did it because it was trading at a 40% discount to its assets and the beautiful company that I felt I built was going to end badly if I didn't do it so Mm. I did it reluctantly and then After that, I suppose, working with Pat, we have been more entrepreneurial, figuring out a way to survive the recession here by taking on all these bank loans and things and then launching the REIT. So I suppose I kind of get it now, but that isn't really how I've lived my life. Did you grow up wanting to be in property or, you know, what was your dream? uh, What was your dream job? No, um, I originally thought of doing medicine and then I sort of gave that up and I went to university and read urban and regional studies, because no one told me that if I read English, I could, it could be anything other than an English teacher. There was such appalling uh, you know, advice on careers. I thought any academic degree, what, what would you do with that? The idea that you could read history and go into the city, 
No, no one explained to me that, that was a possibility. Yeah. So I read Urban and Regional Studies because I really enjoyed geography and thought it would be a kind of an applied geography, which it kind of is in a way. And then when I finished, I, I didn't really think in terms of being a surveyor or anything like that. But again, I, I thought then I might be a barrister, but I just didn't have the cash because it's, it's quite an expensive road to go yeah. to be a barrister. You've got years of not really earning anything. Yeah. So I abandoned the whole thing and went off to work for the GLC as a surveyor. <laughs> the rest is history. And the rest is history, yeah. <laughs> Colin, if there was one thing that the government might do to help entrepreneurship in Ireland, what do you think it might be? Well, I think that the, the government, I'd be a bit of a believer that the government should really stay out of the way of business. I think one of the big problems that they have now is they're taxing people very, very hard in the middle. And I know it's difficult to make ends meet, and I certainly know there's not a lot of money around. But it seems to me that if you were a, a 20, 30-something person who was working in a job and working hard, the money that's taken out of your pocket in tax is too high. And if you don't change that, those people will walk. The talented ones might leave the country. An awful lot of them will end up dissatisfied and unhappy. I think if they could help in that regard, that would make a huge difference. But if you wanted one thing that you could change the entire structure of Ireland very, very quickly, give the builders back the VAT for building houses. Just take the 23% hit that they're taking now, put that into profit for four or five years for building companies and let them build a shed load of houses that will make rents cheaper, mortgages cheaper, houses more available. That would change a generation and I think that would be the quickest and easiest way to do something and it is beyond me why they haven't done that because I can say this because I've no connection to the building trade, I'm not a builder, but it seems to me the quickest way of solving the biggest problem that we have. When I walk to your to your offices here, Kieran, I pass four homeless people from where I park my car. It, it is the biggest problem we face and it's the simplest one to solve. The builders are complaining they're not making enough money. If you give them a 23% jump for a couple of years, they're going to be in a situation where they're going to build very quickly. If you keep an eye on the standards and make sure they're not rubbish builders, then you're in a situation where I think you're going to get a win-win and then close it down again and charge the VAT and go back to normal. Yeah, I think yeah. it actually might be 13%, is it, for, for builders? But anyway, whatever. I think on labour it's 13 and yeah. then on materials it okay. could be higher yeah, I'm not else, sure. in other countries I don't think VAT is charged on new houses and yeah. then, then there's also levies you see the, the local authorities are looking to house builders to provide them with the money for mm. Mm. everything they want I agree completely with, with you uh, Stephen what's your what's your view on NAMA have they done a good bad or indifferent job uh, do you think I think they've done a very good job within the mandate they were given now that's not the same as saying that I would have set NAMA up the way they set it up I, I think it's an incredible... Would you have run it any differently? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the bullet should have been bitten and it should have been accepted that what it was was a state real estate company. Then they could have staffed it up with real estate people. But that would have required a completely different mindset. You couldn't have had all the accountability and the transparency that you know people wanted. So you, you can't have it both ways. You either have that kind of structure or, or you have a real estate company that would have made a lot more money, but then it might not have achieved the objectives as quickly as it did. The answer to your question is that I do think they've done a very good job within the mandate they were given. Hmm. Right, OK. Colin, I want you to project out five to ten years, uh, if you like. Is this a business that you still own? I mean, you, you talked about your, your aspirations for turnover and so on, but is this a business that ultimately gets taken over, like a lot of Irish businesses do, get taken over by a multinational? Or is it something you want to continue to own yourself? Well, I'm 26 years in business now, so we're not an overnight success by any means, and we're still a work in progress. But not once in those 26 years has anyone ever approached us to try and buy us. So I'm the opposite of, 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 of attractive in, 
in terms of a business well, this model. Is your, this is your opportunity now to pitch for well, that. Well, I, I actually don't want to because I honestly think that we could grow this business significantly and, and wherever we take it, we take it. What we do is we work in five-year periods and we're just coming to year four of a, of a plan. We've actually reached our goals a year early. So what we're going to do now is we're going to work for five years and see where it takes us. And it could take us nowhere. We could end up smaller than we are now or we could double in size if we grow at about 12.5% a year, as I hope. So either way, we're in a situation where I think we'll look around in a few years' time. Luckily... I don't have too much of a temptation in this regard because our business is looked as old school, boring. It's not a techie, cool business. And that suits me fine because as far as I'm concerned, we can do what we do well and we won't have as many competitors and maybe we won't be as sexy as some other businesses. But we can we can do what we do, service our customers and grow our business. And if I do all of those things, I don't have any great need to, to sell it. And I don't really particularly want to give up on where it could go next. That's really what I'm aiming yeah, for. Sure. Stephen, you're 66, I think. I am. Uh, it's an age when a lot of people are starting to wind down, knees back, and I don't want to pension you off. I know uh, you've uh, plenty more projects that you want to uh, crack on with, but, uh, you know, again, sort of where do you see yourself in five years' time? Is Well, I tell my children I'm a young man trying to get along. <laughs> I told them that about 20 years ago, and they still tease me. Um, I have no intention of retiring because I don't need to retire. I mean, it's what I do. I love it, you know, and I, I know a lot of people in the industry um, it's a it's a nice life being a property investor and a developer. In the short run, we have properties under construction development program now in Dublin with an end value of about two hundred and fifty million, and none of that's let. So we've got to get on and complete those buildings. Buildings like Dawson Street, which we think is going to be a huge asset to Dublin, is going to be one of the finest buildings in the city centre. Um, so we've got to complete all that, and we see the REIT as you know, work in progress, building a long-term vehicle. We've, in three years, we've achieved pretty much all of the initial objectives that were set out at the IPO, and we've just completed that by announcing the payment of a dividend. So we're paying about a 3% of our net asset value as a dividend. And um, it's going to be more of the same in the REIT. And then in the UK, it's a question of waiting for the opportunity, which, you know, looks like it might come down the tracks in the next couple of years. All right, gentlemen, I wish you well. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Joe Lynham, Joe Brennan, Mark Paul, Stephen Vernon and Colin Cullerton. John Casey produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times Business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.